Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Get ready to be inspired, create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here's Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Laurel Braitman, PhD. Laurel's a writer, teacher, and secular clinical chaplain in training. She's the author of the brand new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Lost to Love, and the New York Times bestselling book, Animal Madness, Inside Their Minds. She received her doctorate in history and anthropology of science from MIT and is the director of writing and storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine's Medical Humanities and Arts program, where she helps clinical students, staff, and physicians communicate more clearly and vulnerably for their own benefit and for the benefit of their patients. She's also the founder of Writing Medicine, the global community of writing healthcare professionals. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Wired, California Sunday, National Geographic, Radiolab, National Public Radio, and many other places. She splits her time between rural Alaska and her family's ranch in Southern California. Welcome, Laurel. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you today. I'm very happy to have you. And I just want to start by uh, repeating how much I appreciated the book in terms of how deeply you dive into the ongoing nature of of um, dealing with loss in a person's life. You know, my wife died 25 years ago, and it's still an evolving process inside of me. So thank you for the long story. <laughs> Thanks for reading a long story. You know, uh, no one has the has a long story attention span anymore. So so I just I so appreciate when I when I am able to capture one and you're able to to be with me in this way. Yeah, well, that's why I have a one-hour show, why I read all the books, <laughs> because I love the long story. But let's start at the beginning. So when you were about three years old, uh, which is practically, it, which is on the cusp of the age of consciousness, I'd say, um, you know, uh, memory that is uh, linear, I guess, your dad was diagnosed with cancer. So can you share a bit about um, what, when you were first aware of what he was dealing with, kind of the beginning of the story? Sure. I mean, the truth is, I don't remember like finding out uh, because, as you say, three is just the beginning of understanding you were a conscious being. So I have a few flashes of memories before and I have flashes of memories after. But what I can say is that when I was about three and a half, my life changed and was never the same again. Um my dad was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of bone cancer and it had metastasized and he was told that he had about um, six months to live and to say goodbye to the rest of us. And there really wasn't many options for treatment at that time with bone cancer of his particular one. There still isn't great treatments, but it's better than it was. This was the early eighties. Um, chemo for bone cancer was new. Radiation wasn't quite available yet. Um, 
And so he sort of started to get his affairs in order and then realized uh, he wanted to try some some other options. And he was a physician, so he had the privilege of doing some of his own research and um, he didn't die, uh, which was amazing. And then he kept not dying. Um, so I'd say that that really was the forge of my selfhood, of my consciousness. I, I don't remember a time of my life in which my father wasn't dying. Um, and I know the same is true for my brother. So in those early years, you know, we never knew how much time we would have. Uh, we would kind of get it metered out in little bits uh, in months or in weeks or in some lucky cases, a couple of years. Um, but yeah, we, we lived with the, the ticking mortality clock, basically. When I was reading, I was remembering um, my wife lived with cancer for 10 years when she was supposed to die in six months. So it's a, a little bit similar and um, young children, um, even one child who came into the middle of it, right? So, um, and I, I recalled how many times we thought it was the last of something. Uh, it would be the last Christmas or the last birthday or the last time we'd go to Sea Ranch or something, but then it wouldn't be, you know, over and over and over again. Does that ring a bell with you? Because it felt like... You never quite knew when it might be the time, huh? Yes, I, that's exactly how it felt. And and I would love to know your experience. For me, that is both a blessing and a curse, right? Like on the one hand, we never know. We, we often don't know our last until it's too late. And I would never, you know, I would not call this a silver lining in any way. But I also do think it makes you present for everything in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be. The problem with that and, you know, what a lot of the book is about is what do we do with that if the, we do keep getting extra chances, right? Like, and the inevitable anxiety that comes with that, like every time I eat a pizza, must I wonder if this is the last time I eat a pizza? Pizza? Like sometimes you just want to have a piece of pizza. That makes me laugh because my second wife around uh, three months in, she, she said, Cheryl, we're actually not experiencing an emergency right now. Yes. <laughs> now she wanted me to calm down a little bit. That, that, that. <laughs> and, and I didn't experience myself as anxious, but I was like hyper aware Yes. Sense. And uh, it's interesting because you were a child, you know, you the first sentence of the book just got my attention um, so much. It was 1985. I was seven years old and I had one thing on my mind, saving my family. Well, that's a magical thinking thing that kids would do. And so as I was going through it, I was always thinking, what are they making of this? And I was trying to help them make something of it. But in the meantime, children make what they want to make of it, don't they? <laughs> yes. And and I think what's what's so hard and impossible, I think, from your perspective as a parent, is that what the kids are thinking is often so bananas that you cannot imagine as wildly as they do to disabuse them of their magical thinking, right? Like, despite how much you would want to, if they don't tell you or hint at what their magical beliefs are, it's almost impossible for someone who loves them to reassure them or to try 
and change their mind and feel make them feel less responsible. And then so you're you're left with these kind of blanket statements of like, you do know this is not your fault, right? Or, you know, things like that, which is fine. But but kids are actually so much more sophisticated than that. They may realize that like, you know, if I don't tap the car of the door every time I see a telephone pole, you know, then like mom is going to have a recurrence. Like you, it would never occur to you to tell the kid like, you know, like you don't need to do the telephone pole tap, right? Like, because you wouldn't, that would never occur to you. So I think, you know, there is this, it's also protective, right? And I, and I write a lot about that. If, if these magical thinking beliefs, if you have control, even if it is like painful and something bad happens, if you have that kind of control, then there is a reason. There is a reason that your mom is dying, you know, even if you are partly the cause or the fact that you didn't say your your OCD list that I love, that's what my chosen form was, um, or you don't do your taps or you don't uh, call in your magical uh, friend, you know, to help um, and something bad happens, you feel guilty and terrible, but still it's because it happened for a reason. You don't have to admit that bad things happen for no reason at all. And, and that's something, you know, that I... It took me a long time to understand. Yeah, I feel as if if I wasn't writing another book right now, I might write write one called um, "Coming to Terms with a Random Universe," <laughs> because Please. because um, that's the final thing to do, isn't it? To say, well, it's not in our control. We're influencing things. We're living. We're making decisions. But we have no idea how it's going to come out or what's going to happen next. Or, And uh, I've come to the point where that's a little calming. I don't know about you. Uh, that I am not there. I need your book, clearly. And if it could come in a manual form with like places to take notes or maybe tattooable <laughs> on my body, I, I would really like that. Well, maybe I have to think about that. But uh, maybe it'll get somehow woven into this other book. <laughs> but, it, you know, it does seem like eventually there's the part we can influence and the part we can't. And taking on all the parts we can't is just so painful, isn't it? So but painful. Making me think maybe that's not all bad for kids. Uh, yeah. I, Lot about how kids um, make it their fault because it's too scary to think that they're, you know, about abuse and all kinds of things because it's too scary to think that their parents are actually not able to handle things, right? Yes. Yes. That's, that's life and death, isn't it? So, yeah, little- like our delusions are helpful often until we're safe enough to be able to see the truth. And and I think, you know, sometimes in my case, I needed to be in my mid-30s. You know, for other people, maybe they can get there by age 15 or they can get there in their 20s. But I think, you know, we're able to reflect on and investigate the things that are hardest for us whenever we're ready. And everyone is on a totally different timeline. I don't judge anyone for that. You know, I wish people the least amount of suffering possible. Um, but I think that those beliefs, even if they can be self-limiting, are there for a reason, for the most part. Another thing that very much stood out to me in in your book, we could call it, uh, you know, sometimes I tell my own story through the, the losses I've had, like that's the lens. And we change about loss over time, don't we? That little three, seven, 15, 17 year old is not who you are now. And uh, I loved how you wove together 
those early experiences and how you understood them into experiences now as an adult. It's, it's very different. Thank um, you. Yeah, you know, I, I hope that's true. You know, we have we have so many like illness and loss memoirs at this point. And, and I do think that there can sometimes be like a fetish, fetishization and culture around like, you know, trauma and loss, and we list this, and this is who we are. And I wanted to avoid that in the work as much as I wanted to claim the painful things that happened to me, I want to talk about how they're never fixed. And we are also always much more complicated and often messier <laughs> than the limited list of things that have happened to us. And, you know, and in my experience, the way I have been many people, um, even that I'm only I'm 46, but I have been many, many people. And some of those people have been better behaved than others. And some of them have been wiser than others. And I, I wish it was progressive. I think the subtitle of my book um, is is a little bit false advertising. It's from loss to love, as if that is like a one way path, right? Um, but that's not true. I, I think it's so much more complicated than that. And, and so, so thank you for saying that. No, I, I think we are constantly changing our what the meaning we make of the things that have happened to us and loss in particular is also constantly changing. Um, I'm sure if I was going to write this book in five years, it would look different. Um, well, there are time capsules. You even. Said in the last section, some uh, started it by saying something about how um, it's only a finished story if you if you finish it somewhere <laughs> or something like that. Uh, I'm I'm wrecking the quote, but you know what I'm talking about. There's an end a book, but not a story. No. And it, uh, what I notice is the story of my wife's life, my parents' lives, my friends who've died. Those are not finished stories for me either. They keep evolving and changing, and I keep having a different relationship to them. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, my favorite film as a kid was, uh, you know, I was a kid of the 80s, but my favorite film as a kid was Never Ending Story. Not only is it in the title, but it's a book within a film. It's a book within a book. And that, that's the feeling of life to me. Um, you know, you're busy writing one, you're living another. And and all of them, all of them are, are a snake eating its tail um, in a beautiful way. So I want to circle back just for a minute to what you said about all the grief memoirs. As someone who lived through being a, a time when there were hardly any, mm. you know, I, I feel that's a hopeful sign. And I know that you help people write their stories, including grief stories, that you think there is value in our stories. I've listened to your TED Talk, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I've been, I dedicated my life to it, to helping yeah. people tell their stories. You know, I, you know, I'm just being kind of playful and, and also, you know, I'm a bad capitalist. Like, I think it's, it is hard to sell a grief book. Uh, you know, um, I think that books like ours, you know, they find the people that need them. Um, but it's harder, you know, to, to be on like the Today Show. Like, I just, I, for the reason we need grief memoirs, let me say this, is the same, is because 
because it's often hard to have these kinds of conversations in popular culture. And I think that's changing and it's getting better. But I think in many ways, people are scared of books or podcasts or other things often that have grief or loss in the title. And the reason we need them is because many people are scared of those kinds of words. You know, so I think, you know, we're in here, the, the choir is in here. And once someone joins the club, you know, they're, they're in here too. And everyone joins the club eventually. Um, so I'm just relieved that there is reading material, that there are personal stories. They, for me, they were lifeboats. Um, so I, I think it's sacred work, but I, I do think it's a little harder, um, to reach a mass market level. You know, some people certainly do it, but if you have to make your living, which I do speaking to the broadest public audience possible, um, you know, I, grief, grief is a, is a bit of a harder sell, you know, didn't change my mind. I'm in here doing it. You have to write the book that's in you to write for yeah. sure. But also yeah. your book is, is phenomenally well-written and that helps a lot because Thank you. even though people don't want to, you know, dive into grief, everyone has grief. It's yes. actually, that there are people out there that have no losses. It's just the big one hasn't come along and truly clobbered them, isn't it? So to me, people writing well their stories of coming to terms with loss makes it more available to people who wouldn't naturally pick up, uh, you know, a loss book. Thank you, yeah. Agreed. Or something. So I'm all for the story. I just want to say that. Um, Thank you. Of course I would be. That's that's the radio show is that too, right? People Yes. Um so I guess I wonder what you think you said it was about thirty when you were ready to brave the wilds of your own grief and your own, what you had stored away. Um, and I, it's almost our break time, but when we come back, I want to hear about what you think tipped the balance. What made you prepare, prepared, well, we're never prepared, but prepared enough to, to actually dive in. Can we come back to that after the break? Listeners, I want to, I want to mention a new sponsor I have, Lifeline Screening. I, I really feel they're talking about living as well as you can for as long as you can, a subject near and dear to me. And so I'm happy to collaborate with them. They offer a full screen, health screening to detect risk of stroke and cardiovascular disease. And if you don't, don't really have that available, a full screening from your healthcare provider and, and your healthcare plan, I think it's a, a great way to get some information, both to reassure or to discover things that you want to pay attention to. So they have some special package pricing, 50% off, $159, and they're all over the country, so you can get them near you. Painful, non-invasive, that matters to us, doesn't it? So get some peace of mind, get some early detection, lifelong screening. The number is 833-539-0231. You'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I'm on all the platforms, so you can reach out to me, you can 
follow me and all that stuff. And to find Laurel Braitman, you can go to Laurel, L-A-U-R-E-L, Braitman, B-R-A-I-T-M-A-N.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Laurel Breitman about her book, What Looks Like Bravery. And before the break, Laurel, I was... um, saying I'd like to really hear, I have some, I have an idea of the progression that you, the path you took that finally resulted. Um, But when I have a new client, I always ask them, what was the thing that finally tipped them into calling me? Because I think it's really telling that thing that finally pushes it over the edge so i was very curious how you how you think about that what got you finally ready to face it in a different way to face instead of the you know muscling through to face all the complicated and and painful feelings well firstly what an excellent therapist you are no one's ever asked me that question what a good question um i think it's a great one in, in my case, you know, it was, um, I was in love uh, with a very brave, blunt and forthright woman who asked me what was bothering me. And 
she actually cared. I think it was the first time I'd ever been with anyone who asked me how I was in a way that meant it. Like that I, if I answered with a messy answer, they wouldn't just welcome it. That's what they wanted. Um, and I knew that and I wanted to, to answer, but, and I couldn't. I actually knew, I knew something was bothering me. I, I call it the like itchy sweater feeling, you know, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't verbalize it. And I am a writer, you know, like I give words to things all the time. And I w was sort of shocked. And I asked her if I could have a couple days to think about it. And she just laughed at me. And she, you know, she said, sure. And I, it took years. <laughs> you know, it took me a, a whole journey to figure out how to answer the question of what was wrong with me um, and what was bothering me. But eventually I did. And but I needed a hell of a lot of help, you know, so I'd say that was the sort of my like Gandalf going to the Shire moment and telling Bilbo Baggins he needed to go on a journey. That was that was my Gandalf coming to the Shire moment um, where I realized like I had some real work to do. And and also my coping mechanism for difficult feelings also kind of crumbled right around then. So I think if I had had a kind of healthy way of um letting myself feel difficult feelings like rage and shame and guilt and regret, then maybe none of this would have happened. And uh, who knows what I'd be doing these days. <laughs> um, but, uh, but my coping mechanism had stopped working too. And, and I think, you know, the coping mechanisms only are coping mechanisms if they help you cope, <laughs> not if they help cause your life to fall apart. So true. Yeah. Uh, I love the way she put it, too. Don't take this the wrong way, but I think there's something wrong with you. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> how she put it. You can. Yes. Constance Hockaday, truth, truth teller. I want to admit at this point in the show that I'm a little in love with your parents or maybe in, with their relationship. Yeah. And they did do, I think a lot, I mean, parents come to me to to ask me how to deal with their kids around grief and loss and everything. They didn't do everything wrong, did they? I mean, no. there it no. wasn't a hidden secret, right? No. They, it, it was it in the background and you knew it. They taught because he was a physician. I think you got more detail than a lot of children about what was actually happening to him. You know, all of that. But it seems like, even though they seem like two pretty emotionally based people, in terms of, especially in their relationship, they kind of missed that part, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> that you might be having a ton of feelings. And there was this kind of um, uh, don't feel sorry for ourselves thing, which is different from lamenting, isn't it? Yes, yes. There was, you know, I, I obviously, you know, the book is in many ways a love letter to them and their goofy way of parenting and getting through hard things. And they taught me to have joy. You know, I, I'll be grateful for that forever. They never, ever let joy out of the room, no matter what terrible thing was happening. And that, that is my, my heart's coping mechanism. And that one will never break. Um, you know, that I'm grateful for forever. I think where they, they sort of went a bit astray was because, you know, their coping mechanisms, certainly my father's who was ill the longest and first, um, he, he dealt with his illness as kind of not 
pushing it aside, but it was something that uh, he saw as weakness, I think, in some way. And I think he confused vulnerability with weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's what I learned. Um, and if we could go back in time, that's something that I would change. Um, but he was in many ways a kind of like Jewish Marlboro man. And uh, I think saw negative feelings um, as as a kind of liability in some way and and didn't want I, I think really thought that if 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 we were happy and having fun, that he his illness would mark us less. I think he he carried some serious guilt too that this was my brother in my childhood, and there was nothing that he could do about it, and he couldn't protect us from it. Um, and so, best not focus on it. Let's instead focus on all these other things. But the message that I learned that I'm not even sure I, I know he wasn't consciously trying to teach me um, was that it's it, it is possible to outwork one's own pain. And um, excellence and the pursuit of excellence may protect us from it. And that if we keep moving fast enough, like our pain and our fear just might not catch up with us. And and that is just how I lived for far too long. You know, now I know, and in writing the book, what I discovered was I really don't think that's what he was trying to teach me at all. Um, but I was too young to know and to ask the right kinds of questions. And I don't think um, he had the emotional awareness to, to necessarily talk about it. Um but I, I misunderstood. And I, and I think that's, a, again, a kind of like teenagers version of magical thinking. Um, they, my parents couldn't disabuse me of what I believed because they didn't quite know what I believed, certainly about myself, that I was bad, that this was my fault, that if only I had done something different, the pain we were all feeling would be lessened. Um, they didn't know to tell me not to feel that way because I hid that that's how I felt. Well, also, I'm aware of, um, I, you know, I kept identifying with your parents, obviously. Yes. And there is a way that um, I was terrified for a couple of years, but I wasn't terrified for 10 years. Um, the other eight, I was pretty busy living. Right. <laughs> you know, so there was, it wasn't a, a, a like a, an attempt to be joyful. I actually felt yeah. So there's that in it, too. Um, but being a therapist, I did try to address the feelings and all. But I, I agree with you that that the experience a child is having is not obvious to the parent. Uh, it took me till my she died when my youngest child was two and a half ish. Hmm. And um, it took me, I don't know. She was mid-20s or 30. I was always wondering, why didn't she want to talk about it? And then at some point, I realized she was pre-verbal. She wasn't that verbal when that death happened. So it, wow. wasn't, it wasn't a verbal experience. She was talking. but and, and that illuminated me. You know, parents can't know, even observant, emotionally-based parents really can't know what's going on inside another person, including their own children. That's fascinating. So you lived on a farm, which means um, I would assume you spent a lot of time together as a foursome. We did. Yeah, we did. Farm thing together, uh, which is also a pretty unusual experience. Uh, yes. At least 
me. I'm a city girl. Can you talk about how those two wove together? Uh, it, it's, it sounds as if the farm kept operating, even though oh, yeah. lost a leg and, you know, uh, and maybe even all the seeds he planted for you later. Uh, let's talk about the honey and the doves and the... Sure. Can you hear that? He was sort of planting seeds on the farm for you, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, I think nature and farming, there's no better metaphor for life. And he was aware of that. Um, and so I, it was explicit, you know, he, as soon as his cancer came back for good, you know, we really, he had a, he had a bit of a reprieve, as I mentioned for a couple of years. And then when I was 11, um, it came back in a way that we knew he was going to die. He thought very soon and he got pretty serious about preparing my brother and my mom and me uh, to survive and thrive without him. And part of that, because we were a ranching family, was doing things on the ranch um, for our future versions of us. Um, and trees, you know, trees are, are great, uh, are like the Egyptian pyramids, you know, for a farmer um, or anyone who can plant one, really. But he knew he knew that they we would look at them someday and that they would feed us and that they would shade us and that we would think of him. I know he, he did. Um, and so he planted a lot of trees and he he also was a big fan of beekeeping and he knew honey wouldn't spoil. And so he became a beekeeper and he put away decades worth of honey for us that we, so we would still be stirring it into our tea. Um, I thought all of it had been lost. I don't want to give any spoilers for the readers, but I thought all of it had been lost. Um but we recently found a leftover uh, bucket, and so I still have a bit, which is great. Um, you know, it's four-year-old honey. So precious, though, huh? It is, but, you know, it's sort of like what we were talking about. Like, you, Do I not eat it? You know what I mean? Like, no. I do. I know exactly. Um, it feels weird stirring it into my tea. I'm like, am I wasting this? But then I'm like, but... but no, this is exactly what he wanted. This is exactly what he wanted. He wanted me to put it in my tea at 46 years old um, and think about him and think about us and our memories together. So he did a lot. He he also was interested in long life, long life animals and pets. And we, we had all kinds of animals that outlived him and probably will outlive us. Anyone who's really interested in immortality should get a parrot or a tortoise. Um, although I really don't recommend having parrots as pets for many reasons. But um Anyway, he did all kinds of things, uh, taught us skills that he knew uh, we would use for the rest of our lives. And I, it was kind of like a survival school, I would guess, like a really bespoke survival school um, based on what he thought I would need to know to be OK without a dad. It also seemed to me that he was constantly reinforcing his belief. You know, I had a mantra when my kids were little, so maybe I'm projecting. My mantra was, um, they're going to be great adults, right? No matter what was going on. And I mean, childhood is rough. Yeah, <laughs> so, and parenting is rough too. And I just, especially one of them who struggled more than the others, I, I would always be, she's going to be fine as uh, when yeah. she's adulthood, right? It seemed to me that knowing that he would not be there, your father was particularly fierce about um, telling you how much he believed in you 
Is that is that a, a apt reading? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. But, you know, then you read the second half of the book and you realize, like, what that did for me and to me. And on the one hand, it, there's nothing better. The best drug on earth is someone believing in you. On the other hand, expectations can sometimes feel like a cage. And and I think I needed to spend the second half of the first half, hopefully, of my life um, learning how to figure out what I wanted for myself and to untangle the wishes my parents had for me um, from what I might want to do for myself. And because I I did not spend my adolescence rebelling or my teenage years rebelling, right? Like it felt like a kind of betrayal. Like if, if I change too much, will my parents be able to find me? Will they recognize me? Will they be proud of me? Um, you know, I'm 46 years old. I, I still want, and, and my parents are gone now. And I'm like, I still want them to be proud of me. I, they're still my audience forever and ever. They are still who I do what I do for. Um, I wish I could say, you know, I do it for me now or some higher purpose, uh, but they, they are my higher purpose. Um, and I, you know, I, that, that is both good and complicated <laughs> and hard. <laughs> You know. Well, and paradoxical, because, of course, being your whole self was what they dreamed of. Yes. So being some fake version who just does what they say wasn't actually what I think he was after. But um, one thing that did stand out was uh, a rare, perhaps we could say, rebellion, n refusing to get out of the car and go up, go up the MIT steps. <laughs> That's yeah, where you ended up going to graduate school, right? Yeah, so, is it or is it not? You know what I mean? Like I, yes. sometimes rebellion. Sometimes we actually want the thing that we say we don't want, but that's also a reaction, right? So yes. when MIT was in your future, how did he know? I don't know. <laughs> well, but I think I made MIT in my future. You know what I mean? Like I think I. I took his wishes and dreams for me and I made a to-do list. And then I went down that to-do list one thing by one thing. And some of those things were authentic. Absolutely, I wanted to do. I did want to go to MIT eventually. I didn't when I was fighting with him, but I did eventually. Um, but, uh, you know, but then I reached the end of the list and, and he wasn't back and I wasn't happy. And mm -hmm. I felt like I had misunderstood the assignment. I really did. And that's when the rest of my life kind of began. I'd say if there's a big, if, if there's like a pre and post, it was kind of that moment of reaching the end of the list and realizing like, oh, God, uh, I think I think I need a new list. And also I need new motivation for the next phase of my life because I need to figure out what I want. Do you serve the list as, or does the list serve your life? <laughs> exactly. You're still quite an accomplished person. You, you're doing a lot of things. It's based on everything you've done before, but it seems as if it's got a different underpinning. Yeah, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to do my work now, whether that's writing or teaching or, you know, trying to help others figure out how to tell their own stories about the hardest things that have happened to them and how they find meaning in them. You know, not out of uh, proving to myself that I am good proving to myself that I am not bad, proving to myself that I haven't let someone I love down. That's what I want to leave behind. I don't want to stop doing the things. I love the things. It's that I want the motivation to do the things to come from the joy of doing them for other reasons beyond needing to prove to myself that I'm not bad inside. That That's, that's the big change, not the work.
not the work. That's fantastic. Let's take another break and we'll come back and talk some more. Listeners, you can go to goodgriefwithcheryl.com, my website, to check me out, or the Good Grief Post page. All the social media um, links are on the host page. And to find Laurel Braitman, go to laurelbraitman.com. Back after the break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Laurel Braitman about her book, What Looks Like Bravery. And... um, Another thing we have in common, Laurel, our mothers both died of pancreatic cancer. So um, that is a a particular experience. Our, Our experiences are not identical. But what our mothers had in common is kind of um, taking the reins on their illnesses. And I wonder if you could talk, you know, obviously you had, you've had some pretty big losses in the last few years, which you approach differently, I think, because of all your other experiences. Um, But of course, her life in general stood out to me because she chose love again twice. You know, she's (laughs) what a woman, right? Um, But could you talk about that uh, experience of supporting her and and the differences between the deaths of your two parents? 
Absolutely. Yeah. My, my mom, first of all, I'm so sorry about your mom. I just, Patty, but they're all, it's all bad, but pancreatic cancer is just especially bad. I, I did not know that until I watched a loved one go through it. And it's just brutal. Um, my mom was diagnosed uh, in January of 2020. So right before the pandemic, oh um, and our house had just burned down like a year and a half before. And so we were kind of living in a in the middle of a wildfire. We were living in a construction site. The pandemic started. I was trying to get her, manage her care. Um, it was a lot. So in many ways, my experience of her illness is also inextricable from the wildfire and also inextricable from the pandemic um, itself. The outside was matching the inside there. Yes. 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 And in some ways, like, again, I would, I do not ever want to discuss this as a blessing, but I will say I was privileged to have flexible work. Um, I could move in with her and be with her in that time. And also because she was still living on the ranch, like um, my now husband could come and we could spend a lot of time together outside, which was really nice. Um, so we didn't have a kitchen or anything, but we could be, we could take walks, <laughs> which was great. At least <laughs> for as long as she could. Is, pay attention to both the, the terrible, awful and the beautiful, right? Exactly. Exactly. That, that whole time was such an education in that because of the extremes were so extreme. Um, but she knew from the jump. So at, upon diagnosis, it, her prognosis was really bad. It had already metastasized and and um, she pursued treatment for a little while. But the same day she got the diagnosis, we talked about medical aid in dying, which is now legal in California. Um, my father had done the same thing. So my father chose medical aid in dying. Um, but it was a long time ago. It was 1995. Um, it wasn't legal. Uh, we weren't to talk about it. I wasn't supposed to know. I did know, but I wasn't supposed to know that that's what had happened. Covered by accident. I, I remember. Yes, oh. yes. Kept it a secret. Um, and with my mom, you know, it was a it was a true blessing that it had been legalized and we could have those kinds of conversations because from the very beginning she knew um, she didn't have much time. And I would never say it's good for everybody. I only wish people had the choice uh, because for her, she she didn't want to go through liver failure. She had meds in her liver. Um she knew what she wanted. And so from, from a very, and, and, and we were able to have really honest conversations about her death and that process because of the experience we had had with my dad. So I think in a lot of ways, it was a gift to have a do over, you know, we really wanted to make sure no one would be feeling that they didn't know if she knew they loved her, um, or wondering how she felt about them. We really vowed that for as long as we could, we would try to do this as best we possibly could considering all the outside limitations upon us and help and I, I vowed you know I remember our conversation day one like I promised to help her die like she wanted to um, and for her that was medical aid and dying and also pursuing treatment um, for as long as it would work so we really you know we were able to do a lot that we, that we had not done with my dad because my dad had been you know didn't really want to talk about it he he was not scared about talking about death and we knew all the time and we would say goodbye but um 
he, it wasn't like a collaborative process, uh, with him. Whereas my mom, you know, really, really wanted to do it differently. And, and she was so brave as she, as she went about it. And, and we actually had tons of fun. Um, I, you know, I will look back on those months with such joy and gratitude for the rest of my life. You know, I, I regret that she is not here. I miss her terribly every day, but I do not regret her death. I do not have shame and guilt around her death. And, and that is, is a miracle for me <laughs> because I carried it for so long from my father. That's just what I wanted to highlight a lot that, um, you know, the grief field used to say it doesn't matter, like how people die, you know, all these things didn't matter. It all matters. <laughs> <laughs> Every single part matters. And what really complicates grief in my experience is regret. Yes. Yes. So, 100%. Um, so to me, to know that you were doing what she wanted, and, and I have a very similar story with my mom. I mean, it's different, but similar in that she was doing treatment. She was handling it okay, but we had to go to the city to do it. And one day she said, I don't want to go to the city anymore. I'm suspending treatment, right? <laughs> So I, I'd like to say right oh of traffic. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. But you know, she knew what she wanted. And she thank God wanted. you had the kind of relationship where she could tell you that. That's and rough. she could be honest. I mean, that that's such a testament to your relationship and the honesty between you two. That's it's amazing and, and funny. So for on my end, my brother and I had very different relationships to it because of what I'd gone through with my wife. Uh-huh. Uh, that yes. really prepared me to just line up behind her mm -hmm. in a way that he was not really prepared to do. You know, he showed up and everything, but mm -hmm. no complaints about the way he acted, but he couldn't do that. That that yeah. was that was experience. And it seemed to me that um the ways that things went wrong for you with your dad and the work you did to deal with that loss probably contributed a great deal to being able to do that together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so grateful, you know, I, which is a crazy thing to say about a terrible thing that happens, but I'm not grateful for the experience. Wish, wish I was a person, you know, in midlife a relative, and, and a young person that still had parents. I'll tell you that. Yeah, but, but, um, those lessons are have have been invaluable and i do think i do think death and being around death is a practice i really do you know and i it's a shame it's a shame we don't get to talk about these things enough um because as we've said like it comes for us all it comes for everyone we love um and, and i think the more you you're around it the better you can show up the less shame you kind of walk through like i did have some shame and regret right after my mom died and but what I knew then was that what I was feeling wasn't real shame and regret. What I was feeling was like that desperate child's attempts of feeling guilty so that I could have a reason. And, yeah, yeah. Well, also, um, I want to put in a plot. So grief can capture people and hold them forever, right? Yeah. Um, that terrible, wrenching, awful place. It's effort that leads to something different. 
So, or integrating it, I'd say like, I feel like grief has caught me and held me forever, but it's also a lens with which it's like another glasses that go on top of my glasses (laughs) and it makes me see more. And, and, and so that I, I feel like I don't ever want to let go. I wish I could be less sad. I wish not every joyful moment was an also tinge with sadness. Like I think some of those people exist. They're not close to me. <laughs> but I think some people are like that. I have no idea what that is like. I kind of like to try it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I I have a, more of a before and after as an adult. Huh. I am much, much more joyful than I was before those 10 years. Really? Much, oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> I didn't have a sense of humor before that. Ah. Uh. Um, I, I was just ultra serious. I was very anxious. And so I, I'll take it. I'll take sad, happy, whatever, all at once. That's okay with me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's surely honest, right? Like I, I think, I think it's the most honest way to be, um, and I, I've just stopped trying to separate those things. Exactly. I'm also so aware that the work you did to kind of plumb your own depths led to one of those beautiful deep loves that twice in life, you know, (laughs) once with the person who died and once with the person who came later, you know, which I was so lucky. Well aware loss can come out of that, but it seems worth it. I think I, I agree with your mom on that. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. I've, I've finally gotten on board. You know, I, I tried to fight it for a really long time. Like, I am in love despite my greatest efforts, is what I would say. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm in love despite my greatest efforts. Yeah, to not be. But, but, but it came for me, and I am appreciative, even though I am also mad at it because it makes me worried I'm going to lose it all the time, you know. Well, that's a given, right? Yeah. yeah. We're talking about that, right? Yeah. With that. Um, yeah. Mentioned on the show before, for like a year after I met my now wife, I would just, you know, if I woke up at night and looked at her, I'd just see her desk, death mask. You know, oh. it was that present. Yes. I don't mind it. <laughs> uh, it's still there. And it does inform my actions sometimes. Like, do I really want to be right right now? <laughs> do, do I really want to have this fight I'm starting to have? I think I'll say, I need to step away for a minute, right? <laughs> so great. So great. I need you to live in my head. Like, on my best days, I can get a little of that. Like, I'll be like, God, I'm so mad at you. Why is that glass there again? And like, did you really but need to put all those good knives through the dishwasher? You know what I mean? And then I am just like, you will be dead one day. He will be dead one day. You know? And I just like, I rain it. I rain it back again. But but honestly, more days than not, I get pissed about the damn knives. And I am not proud of that. And I just, we all need, some, we all need something to evolve towards, right? Like if I was fully cooked a good person now, like where would I be in 10 years? Go. Yeah. And so I don't want to give the false impression that I never get mad about the knives either. <laughs> Yes, that I step away sooner because I because I know. I mean, this is it, right? Here we are, and now yeah. we're old. So that's got its own set of, you know, seventy and seventy-one. We're not old, old, but we're old. 
I've I've been delighted by our conversation. Thanks so much for being with me today. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. You're welcome. To find Laurel Braitman, go to laurelbraitman.com. Next week, I'll have Roshni Kavati and Rebecca Servos. They're founders of Marigold, an organization that creates rituals and resources that support what they've coined revolutionary grief wellness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.